Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30, we read, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. In the ninth chapter, Mark moves from the transfiguration of Jesus in verses 1 through 13 to the restoration of a possessed boy in verses 14 through 30. And later in the chapter, Jesus will bring up the issues of humility in verses 33 through 37. Harmony in verses 38 through 41 and hell in verses 42 through 50. Here, Jesus predicts his future betrayal and arrest and death and resurrection. We're not shocked that Jesus knows that he's going to die. We are somewhat shocked that the disciples don't comprehend it. They don't understand it or they don't believe it. How is it that we believe some parts of the message of Jesus, but we doubt or deny other parts of the message? We know that we live in a world where where people struggle with this thing called the Bible and the word of God and the message of God and the promises of God. They find themselves going in different directions, wondering if what the Bible says is true. In this passage, we will watch as Jesus gets alone with his disciples in verse 30, teaches them what appears to be an unwelcome lesson in verse 31. And then we're going to evaluate their response. They did not understand. They were afraid to ask verse 32. The passage includes a time of preparation in verse 30. A time of prediction in verse 31 and a pause. Jesus is on a journey. But so are the disciples. We might think of the journey as a road to greatness. But true greatness is not like the world measures greatness. Greatness is measured in terms of obedience to the will of God, a willingness to listen to the word of God and the importance of both the will and the word of God being obeyed and trusted. The disciples must They must learn the lessons of obedience and trust and service and also how to overcome this reoccurring problem of pride. And so the disciples will be exposed to their own false humility, their own desire for position and prominence is going to have to be addressed So the servant prepares the disciples. Look again in verse 30. Then they, that is Jesus and the disciples, departed from there. That is Caesarea, 
Philippi where they've gone past the Mount of Transfiguration and they're making their way into the Galilee. And according to Matthew's gospel, they will stay in Galilee. But it's more than just about geography. They've come from the very north and they're headed south. And what you need to know in your mind and in your heart is that with each step south comes closer to Jerusalem. And the ultimate will of God and the ultimate plan of God and the ultimate purposes of God, because it's in Jerusalem where he's going to be betrayed. It's in Jerusalem where he's going to be arrested. It's in Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. It's in Jerusalem where he's going to rise from the dead. So when the passage says, then they departed from there. They leave the northern section. They go past the Mount of Transfiguration. They find themselves in the Galilee. And look what it says. And he did not want anyone to know it. Why? Why didn't Jesus want anyone to know? And I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus is trying to avoid the crowds and the demands of the crowds. Because this time of preparation is going to require isolation time alone with Jesus Jesus is preparing them for the journey that journey is going to include his betrayal his death his resurrection but make no mistake about it it's also a preparation for their journey (laughs) God has called them and has a plan for them And a purpose for them. You may not realize it yet. But so is your life. God is preparing you. For a lifetime of service to him. I'm going to suggest to you. That in preparation. The cross looms large. Right in front of him. The public ministry of Jesus. Is for the most part over. He is preparing them. And instructing. Them for the future. (laughs) It was Niels Bohr, the famous physicist, who said, Prediction is very difficult, especially about the future. (laughs) You don't have to be a physicist to know that predicting the future is difficult. And there's a reason why it's left unclear, it's left uncertain. For Jesus, it is not unclear and it is not uncertain. It is a cross. It is a resurrection. For the disciples, it's the trauma and drama of the cross and resurrection and more. They're being prepared for greatness. But the future is beyond their grasp. And even though the future is beyond their grasp, it still lies in the hands of God. It was the very famous Dutch patriot, Corrie ten Boom, who who hid Jews during the Nazi Holocaust, who said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. That's brilliant. The future is uncertain, but there is certainly a God who knows the future. 
and holds the future. The sacrifice of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead will become the central message for the disciples and the apostles. All of human destiny hangs on the centrality of the message of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Many of you know that the centrality of Jesus and the centrality of the cross will provide the bedrock of what will become the Christian faith. There's a reason why Paul would later say, I purpose to know nothing among you except for Jesus and him crucified from the dead. You can't be wrong about Jesus and you can't be wrong about the gospel. The huge stumbling block for primitive Christians was the question, why must Jesus suffer? Why must he die? Did he really rise from the dead? And our destiny is determined by grasping these truths and believing these truths and receiving these truths. The disciples still hold on to the false belief that the Messiah will overthrow Israel's enemies and rule and reign in an earthly kingdom. And that's the rub. The rub is that Messiah will overthrow Israel's enemies. The Messiah will rule and reign in an earthly kingdom. But that earthly kingdom will be preceded by a suffering servant who will die for the sin of the world. You see, when Jesus returns, he's not going to die for your sin. He's already done that. He's going to rule and reign on his father's throne. And so in verse 31, he predicts the future. Look what it says. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he'll rise the third day. For the second time, Jesus predicts his betrayal, his death and his resurrection. The first time, remember, was in the last chapter. If you turn to chapter 8. And you remember in verse 31, some of you, you can just turn the page. It says, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. He calls himself the son of man, not because that's the most important title that he has. He calls himself that. Because he identifies with you. You see, Jesus is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords and he is the son of David and he is the first and the last. He is the beginning and the end. He is the sum and the substance of all of reality. But he refers to himself as the son of man because he identifies with you in your humanity, in your weakness, in your temporalness. The son of man is being betrayed. Into the hands of men. And if you look at the very beginning of the passage in verse 31. For he taught his disciples. The Greek word is idadaske. The Greek word for teaching is didaskalos. Here in the verb form the tense is imperfect. Why is that important to you? Because It's telling us that Jesus continues to teach them. He keeps on teaching them. The picture in the text is that in a repetitive fashion, he is teaching them over and over again. I want to draw a picture for you as they're walking Caesarea 
Philippi. They're coming to the Mount of Transfiguration. They find themselves in Galilee. Here's what's happening. Jesus is taking Peter aside. He's taking Peter, James, John, Philip, Matthew, Bartholomew. He's taking them aside. He's taking them perhaps one by one or two by two or three by three. He's gathering them together. He's reminding them about the betrayal and the death and the resurrection. He's doing it over and over and over again. This isn't just some offhanded statement. We know that human beings typically learn through the power of repetition. Every one of you, when you were growing up, do you remember when you learned your ABCs? A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, N, T, U, V, W, X, and Y, and Z. You know how it goes. Now you know your ABCs. Constant repetition burning into your mind and heart the reality of what's about to take place. The word betrayed is para didotei. It means more than just simply betrayal by Someone doing you wrong. It means to be delivered over to death. It means a betrayal that is going to terminate your life and end your circumstance. It means that his death is determined, ordained. It is in the counsel and the plan of God. Look at the language. The son of man is being betrayed. The implication is it's happening. It's happening right now. In spite of the prophetic warning, in spite of the repetitive teaching. You know what's interesting? When you make your way through the Gospels, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you come to the end of the Gospels, are the disciples still shocked that Jesus is dying? Are they still shocked over the betrayal? Are they still shocked over the arrest? Are they still shocked by the crucifixion and death? It's impossible to get away from it. It seems to come as a complete surprise. And even if it doesn't come as a complete surprise, it doesn't dull the trauma and the pain. I think most of you know that every life that begins continues and then it ends. That we're all on a journey, aren't we? We are born, we live, we die. We know that our parents are going to die. But when it happens, we're not ready for it. We know that our children are going to die. But no parent in their mind plays out the plan of the death of their child. Because that's not the way it's supposed to be. Here, 
I believe that something astonishing is happening and it becomes a type and a picture for you and for me. I believe that something astonishing that is happening that's only a few brief years away and that's the unfolding of biblical prophecy. No matter how many times pastors and teachers warn you and they say, guess what? There is a time when you're going to stand before God. Guess what? There's going to come a time when human history draws to a dramatic close. Guess what there's going to come a time when human beings are going to disappear in mass called the rapture there's going to be a time when God is going to judge the planet earth and he is going to bring about the final unfolding of all that is and no matter how many times people warn about the reality that the Bible is true no matter how many times people tell you hey this story about Jesus his life his death his resurrection it's all true at the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of the warning in spite of the teaching there's going to be people who are shocked there are going to be people who have sat in your seat Who have walked out these doors and they've heard the message of love and they've heard the message of Christ and they've heard the message of hope and they've heard the message of redemption. They've heard the message of Jesus coming and they're simply not believing it and they're going to be shocked when it comes. Why? Because hearing is not the same as believing. And I want you to think about this for just a moment. They're hearing it from the mouth of Jesus. They're living with Jesus and they're walking with Jesus on the road to Capernaum. We know it's Capernaum because if you look at verse 33, it says, then they came to Capernaum. That looks like it's their final destination. When Jesus finally does rise from the dead. In Acts chapter 2, Peter will deliver his first sermon. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he will preach him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You have taken by lawless hands and you have crucified and put him to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And Paul in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Jesus is going to be betrayed. Jesus is going to be killed. Who delivered Jesus to be crucified? According to the Bible, the father did. According to the Bible, the religious leaders did. According to the Bible, the Romans did. And all of that's true. But so did you. You delivered them. There's a reason why you delivered them. Because of your sin. We also learn that Jesus allowed himself to be killed. In Galatians 1.4, who gave himself for our sin that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Paul writes in Galatians 1, and walk in love, it says, as Jesus also loved us and gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet aroma. It says in Ephesians 5.2, Judas will betray him. Jesus will later name his betrayer. Why is he doing this? Why is he telling them repeatedly? 
to remind the disciples that his death is a willing death. He is not a hopeless martyr. He's not just caught up in a bad circumstance. He isn't just a wrong person at the wrong place at the wrong time. Many scholars suggest that he's some sort of hopeless martyr, and it's not true. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus wanted to stress not only that he was a willing sacrifice, but that he was dying to redeem human beings just as As God willed, Paul articulates that truth in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation through faith. The word propitiation is a big, fancy word, but it just simply means the satisfying solution to the problem of offense. Our sin offended a holy God. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So Jesus continues to assure his disciples that his death is planned by God according to the purpose of God in order to affect the reality that God has always planned. So what does all of this mean for you? It's supposed to prompt you to ask perhaps the most important question that could ever be asked. Why does Jesus have to die? And not just die, but the most horrible death. Why can't he die of food poisoning like Buddha? Why can't he take poison like Socrates? Why does he have to die this kind of a death under these kinds of circumstances? It's to absorb the wrath of God. Romans 3.25, God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over sins. Your sins are not being ignored. They're not being neglected. They're not being passed over. In other words, every wrong, every wicked thing has to be dealt with. And you may not understand it, but it was to absorb God's wrath. Jesus dies to please his father, to learn obedience, to be perfected, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners, to cancel the legal demands of the law against us, to become a ransom for us, for the forgiveness of sins, to provide the basis for justification, to take away our condemnation, to abolish circumcision and all of the rituals that accompany salvation, to bring us to faith in order for us to be faithful, to make us holy, to make us blameless, to make us perfect, to give us a clear conscience, to obtain everything that's good. Now imagine somebody says, well, what else? Really? Really? If those were the only reasons, wouldn't those be enough? What other reasons do you need? What other reasons will satisfy you? Does he die in order to heal us from moral and physical sickness? Yes. To give us eternal life to everyone who believes? Yes. To deliver us from this present evil age? Yes. To reconcile us to God? Yes. That we might belong to him? Yes. 
Do you want more reasons? To give us confident access to the holiest place. To become the place where we meet God. To free us from the slavery of sin. To enable us to live for Christ and not ourselves. So that we can be changed. Do you need more reasons? How about the cross becomes the grounds for all boasting to free us from the bondage of the fear of death, to secure our own resurrection from the dead, to unleash the power of God in the gospel, to destroy the hostility between the races, to ransom people from every tribe and every tongue and every language and every nation? How about to rescue us from the final judgment? How about... To make sure that one day Jesus will be crowned King of kings and Lord of lords so that all glory and honor belongs to him. Now all of a sudden you have a tiny taste of why he reminds them over and over And over again. And look what happens in verse 32. But they didn't understand this saying. And they were afraid to ask him. Faith and fear can't share the same space in the human heart. But they did not understand this saying. How is it possible that they didn't understand the saying? How is that even possible? You may be unprepared for the answer. It's the same answer that people give today. Dead people don't come back to life. Jesus, what are you talking about? What are you saying? We're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to die and you're going to come back to life. But guess what? People who come back to life, even if they do it temporarily, even if there's a temporary resuscitation, they don't come back to life. What do you mean? This is all so creepy. You die and you come back to life. And what? What? We follow a zombie? We think that ancient people were ignorant or stupid or gullible. And that is simply not the truth. The disciples are not irrational. By the way, do they believe in the supernatural? They do. They've seen Jesus open blind eyes. They've seen Jesus open deaf ears. They've watched him cleanse the leper. They've watched him bring people back to life. They've watched Jesus walk on water. And if you see all of those things and you go, I I still don't believe in the supernatural, then there's something really wrong with you. It isn't that they don't believe in the supernatural, but even their belief in the supernatural has limits. And so there's a skepticism and an unbelief. And how are we supposed to understand? John the Baptist said that the kingdom of God is at hand. Even Jesus has said that the kingdom of God is at hand. And if the kingdom of God is at hand, how can you die and thwart this kingdom of peace and prosperity? How do you establish a kingdom when you're dead? How do you undo? How do you undo a lifetime of wrong thinking and doubt and unbelief? 
they don't understand. And I got to tell you something. I'm one of those people who want to understand as much as I can. I want to understand why left instead of right. I want to understand why up instead of down. I want to understand the truth. I want to understand the truth. But as important as understanding is, it can never serve as a substitute for obedience and trust. Well, I don't understand how people come back to life. I don't either. Except by the power of God. You know, there's an interesting passage in the Bible in First Chronicles 15. You know the story about David and the Ark of the Covenant and how they tried to move the Ark and the, and the guy was struck and killed. And so David understood that in order to move the Ark, they have to move it according to God's revelation and according to God's plan and according to God's purpose. And in verse 13 of First Chronicles chapter 15, it says, Because you Levites didn't carry the Ark the first time, the anger of the Lord our God burst out amongst us, we failed to ask God how to move it in the proper way. The implication being is I did ask, I prayed and I asked God and I said, look, God, we need to move the Ark of the Covenant. But in order to move it, we have to move it according to your plans and your purposes, according to the revelation that's given in the Bible. He learned an important lesson. When God gives specific instructions, it's wise to follow those instructions. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. You can't, I repeat, you can't, you can't, you can't live in rebellion and disobedience and think that it's going to turn out right. It won't turn out good. We may not fully understand the reason behind all of God's instructions, but we know that his wisdom is complete and his judgment is infallible. The way to know God's instruction is to know God's word. And by the way, we're never free to disobey God simply because we don't understand. Well, I don't understand why I should remain pure. I don't understand why I shouldn't steal. I I don't understand why I shouldn't lie. I don't care that you don't understand. Would to God that you did understand. But like a parent, you have to speak to a child. Remember, parents, when you're speaking to your child, can you can you see the child looking at you going, I don't understand why I have to go to bed. Hey, it's not your understanding that I'm looking for here. It's your sleep. Well, I will sleep when I'm good and ready. Of course you will. And let's just see how that works out for you. We're never free to disobey God just because we don't understand. And we are never free to doubt the instructions of Jesus. Listen carefully, simply because we're afraid. I know that this is going to come as a shock to some of you. Understanding is important. But I'm going to suggest to you that obedience and trust are sometimes more important. I'm not in any way diminishing the fact that understanding isn't important. But sometimes trust and obedience are important. Unfortunately, the disciples focused and feared the first part and neglected the second part of the statement that he's going to die and that he's going to come back to life. And you may not understand the journey that God has you on. You may not understand the direction 
that Jesus is pointing you. But the reality is that Jesus is inviting you to believe him, to love him, to follow him, to walk in the direction that he is going. Remember that his journey is now your journey. It's the place of obedience and trust and submission. You'll remember after Jesus rose from the dead, when he was walking with his disciples away from Jerusalem, he said, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Clearly, they didn't comprehend the purpose of his death and they didn't comprehend the reality of his resurrection until he did rise from the dead. And so we shouldn't get too upset or too discouraged because we don't understand everything. The disciples saw him. They witnessed the miracles. They heard The truth, and they still had difficulty understanding. Despite their questions, despite their doubts, they would embrace belief and they would embrace faith. And I'm going to suggest to you that even though you're troubled right now, and even though you might be a little bit discouraged right now, I'm going to suggest to you That things are going to be okay. Ignorance and fear aren't reasons to embrace unbelief. Is it okay for you to say, I don't understand. I don't get it. Yeah. What are the obstacles to faith? Well, we're limited in our understanding. Sometimes we're reluctant to believe everything that the Bible says. James likened it to a person, to a doubting person, to a person like on the ocean, unstable, driven by the winds. He said, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering for he that wavers is like the wave of the sea driven from the wind and tossed for let that not that man think that he will receive anything from the Lord. The Bible says, well, what if I'm struggling and what if I'm suffering and and what if I don't get what I'm supposed to get? Don't even think for a moment that you're going to get anything from the Lord. Well, isn't God going to understand? Of course he's going to understand. Let me help you with something. James doesn't indulge the rationalization. Well, I have honest doubts. I have reasons for not believing. In the earlier passage, remember the man with the demonically possessed son said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus had mercy on the man and invited him to believe him. Clearly, the Bible teaches that there's an unbelief that comes from an obstinate and a hard heart. Take heed, it says in Hebrews 3.12, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. The writer of Hebrews warns about the dangers of an evil heart. The Bible says that unbelief destroys our capacity to see and provokes us to undermine the authority of the word of God. But let me help you understand something. Doubt also has its advantages. And let me tell you what at least one advantage is. It means your faith has room to grow. I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't get it. And I don't understand what the Bible says. Why are you clapping? Well, you've just admitted that there's room to grow in your faith. I didn't say that. Oh, yes, you did. That's exactly what you said. What happens when we don't understand what Jesus is saying or what the Bible is saying? Do you think that the right answer is they didn't understand 
and they were afraid to ask him. Here's the right answer. Look, I don't understand why Jesus wants it this way. Let's don't ask him what he's thinking. Good idea or bad idea? It is a bad idea. It is a bad idea. It may come as a shock and as a surprise to you. That when you doubt certain passages in the Bible and when you deny certain passages in the Bible and you make excuses that your doubt and your denial is based on reality. Is it a reality about God? Haven't you ever opened your Bible and you turned to the first sentence in the Bible and you read it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you can get past that first sentence, the rest of it becomes progressively easier. If you can swallow the first line and all of the implications of that line, does that mean doubt and unbelief will disappear? No. But at least you'll have a basis of inquiry. A.W. Pink wrote, none but the Lord himself can afford us any help from the awful workings of unbelief and doubting and carnal fears and murmuring. Thank God one day we will be done forever with unbelief. There's going to come a day. Where one day you will wake up. And you will believe what Jesus says is true. Blaise Pascal offers this delicious statement. He says, it is not certain that everything is uncertain. (laughs) It is not certain that everything is uncertain. Is the future uncertain? For Jesus, it's betrayal and death and a resurrection. It's certain. For the disciples, it's fear and anguish. It's certain. For both Jesus and the disciples, it's a glorious resurrection. Jesus will come back to life. And doubts will linger. For a while. And then they will disappear. Do you know why this is important to you? Because if you do have doubt. If you lack understanding. If your heart is filled with fear. Let me make a suggestion for you. Admit your doubts. Admit your fears. Admit your failure to understand. Ready? Admit it. Admit it, admit it, and now believe the truth. Ooh, that's the part that I'm struggling with. (laughs) Doubts remind us again that our faith has room to grow. And by the way, let me help you understand how you can resist doubt. It's by believing the truth and practicing trust. Trust in God grows as we faithfully seek him on a daily basis. 
Charles Spurgeon, speaking of the unconverted, said, The besetting sin of the unconverted is to deny their guiltiness, to plead that they are good as others, and to indulge still the vain and foolish hope that they shall enter into heaven from some doing, some suffering, some weeping of their own. It's Spurgeon's contention that the besetting sin of the unconverted is to deny that they have a problem, that their sin isn't real and it doesn't necessitate a savior. But nothing could be further from the truth, because what's certain is that Jesus will be betrayed and he will die and he will come back to life in order to forgive you and reconcile you so that you can walk with him in glory. What is certain? Jesus must be betrayed. He must die. He must come back to life. What is certain? We can't save ourselves. We can deny our guilt. We can plead with others that we're basically good and decent people. We can indulge the foolish and false belief that we can save ourselves through right thinking and right conduct and right living. But Jesus said, no, you must be born again. You must turn from your sin. You must come to Jesus. You must believe him and love him and listen to him and abide in him. And follow him. Where are you going? To Jerusalem. What's going to happen? I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to come back to life. Where will, you, where will your journey take you? We sang about it in our worship service, didn't we? Lead me to the cross. Lead me to the cross. Lead me to the cross. Why? Because that's where forgiveness is. That's where hope is. That's where reconciliation is. And with the cross will come a resurrection. But that's for later. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to you. Lord, we know that doubt... Weakens our resolve to trust you. It prompts us to rely on ourself. It creates temptations to question your goodness and to question your love. Lord, if doubt does anything, it at least concedes that there's room for us to grow. There's room for faith to grow. And again, Lord, I pray for that person who hasn't even begun the journey. Lord, I pray that that doubt and that unbelief would be lifted from their eyes and that they would see the truth about Jesus and the truth about his love and the truth about the cross and the truth about his resurrection. And they'll open up their hearts and receive you, that they'll cry out to you to forgive you. And for the person, Lord, who's beginning the journey and continuing the journey and for the person who finds himself or herself very near the journey's end. 
Lord, I pray that you would fill their heart with faith and hope and love. Knowing with certainty that Jesus is in the future waiting for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.